Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Today, I'm your host, Charlotte Brody. Join us now for a conversation with Annie Leonard, environmental activist, mother, and the creator of the movie, The Story of Stuff. So, uh, you know, usually um, uh, the person who does the introducing does it as a way of saying, here's what you should know about this person to make you pay attention to what they're about to say. But I think you all did that for me. Um, so I'm not going to spend um, 10 minutes giving you the, the vita of Annie Leonard and just begin that conversation, if that's okay with you. So Annie, tell us, tell us about how this happened. Well, can I just first say how happy I am that I'm in a room with this many people that want to talk about this stuff? Because I have just been obsessed with garbage and how materials move through the economy for years. And this is like a dream come true, especially to be in this room where some of my best learning has gone on in my life in this room. So I'm just beaming with... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just so happy to be here with all of you. I feel a little giddy. So I'm just going to share a little bit of a story about how we got to making this film, and then we'll see the film, and then we'll have um, discussion and questions and answers, mostly discussion. So I've been interested in garbage and materials for a long time. I grew up in Seattle in the Northwest, and I had a family that loved to go camping. And so we would drive out to go camping on the weekends and during summer vacations, and that was before we had DVDs in cars, so we actually looked out the windows and talked to each other. And I noticed each summer when we would drive out to go camping in the North Cascades area that we would have to drive further and further to get to the forests, that there were increasingly strip malls and Microsoft offices and such. And I just began wondering what's happening to all those forests that I love so much. And so I, I decided to go to college and study environmental science. I went to college in New York City, which is an odd place to go to study environmental science, but it turned out to be very fortuitous because my dormitory was on 110th Street and my college was on 116th Street. And every day I would walk up those six blocks, every morning there would be shoulder-high piles of stuff on the street. And every day when I'd come home, it was gone. And I, I'm just, I'm kind of curious anyway, but I started wondering, what is all that stuff? So I started digging through it on the six blocks to school. And one of the shocking things I realized is it was almost all paper. I said, oh my God, that is where my beloved forests are going. So I was like, well, where, where is it in the afternoon when I come home? Where is it gone? So I took a class that had a field trip to Fresh Kills Landfill in New York. Has anyone been there? Oh, excellent. I think everyone should have to go there before you get a driver's license in this country. It is an incredible place. Um, the, the rumor, I don't know if it's true, but the rumor is that along with the Great Wall of China, it's one of two man-made structures you can see from space. It's the highest point on the eastern seaboard. So I went there as a sophomore in college. I st it gives me chills to even remember. I stood on the edge of this thing and looked as far as you could see in every direction. It's, I mean, infinitely with stuff. There were couches and stoves and books and clothes and shoes and banana peels and stuff. And I just thought, 
oh my God, we have a fundamental problem if we're organizing our society on this one-way linear flow of materials from forest to trash so quickly. It was just phenomenal. And I stood there, it was like a bolt of lightning hit me and I thought, something is really wrong and I'm gonna figure it out and I'm gonna try to change this. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to spend the next 20 years tracking where our stuff comes from and where it goes. And so I've made this film to sort of encapsulate in 20 minutes what I found out in 20 years. I hope you all enjoy it. We'll see it right now and then we'll have some discussion afterwards. can't tell you how much I love that movie. And, and um, when, when I first met Annie, um, we were working on dioxin um, uh, from a little bit different angles, but really from the anti-incineration angle primarily. And um, I, I just wanted to start, Annie, by, by talking about, you know, most people um, uh, come to this work understanding that it's all connected, but over time they get more and more focused on one piece, right? And more and more specialized on um, what's wrong with incineration or what do we do to get the EPA take dioxin seriously or how can this one treaty make a difference? And, and if, you know, you, you went you went like this, and can you just talk about, how, and it must have felt hard to do because being grown up in the world we both occupy is, is sort of seen as getting more and more narrow. So can you talk some about how you kept getting bigger? I can, I've never been asked that before, that's interesting. Um, I, I was very aware of that process because I feel like in, our culture, we really um, prioritize and value and give a lot of social reinforcement to sort of narrow expertise and that traditional analysis is, is going closer and closer and smaller. I, at that time, worked for an environmental organization whose specialty was that we had about eight people in the world working just on chlorine, on one chemical. And they, they, as a matter of fact, we weren't even allowed to talk about other issues, only that one thing. And what really was the um, impetus for my understanding about how important a systems analysis is, was going overseas and spending time in third world countries. Um, I moved to Bangladesh and ended up spending three years in South Asia working with local environmental groups. And at that point, I had the arrogance of the ill-traveled American, and I was an expert on waste. And I had done basically nothing but think and talk about waste for 10 years. When I went over there and I met my colleagues from other environmental organizations, I've tell you, it's a little embarrassing to say, but I'll tell you, I, in my sort of, um, you know, Western reductionist arrogance, actually felt sorry for these colleagues because I had the luxury to work only on waste, whereas these poor people in these third world countries had to work on waste and water resources and human rights and gender issues and energy and deforestation and agriculture. And I, at that point, thought, well, I must be so much more effective because I get to work only on one thing where they have to work on 10 things. 
And what I realized is you can't work on waste. You can't work on any one thing effectively without understanding the bigger context. So I remember being in Gujarat in India, in a place where there are these huge industrial estates, just night, environmental nightmares spewing out these toxic waste. Um, and, and the workers who work in these factories live in these sort of shanties next to the factories where there are toxic waste rivers running through their communities. And I remember asking people, well, why do you live here? And they said they were thrown out of where they used to live. And I said, why were you thrown out? Because there's a coal-fired power plant or a big dam. Well, why are you doing that? Because they need the energy. Well, where is it going? Well, it's going to this aluminum smelter. You know, just everything was connected. And so to me, it was not scary, but it was enlightening because I realized the more we can understand about the system that we're trying to change, the more we can ensure that our interventions are not just interventions to address that one issue, but are interventions to transform the system. As I was telling Charlotte, you can, as she knows, um, you can fight dioxin to fight dioxin, or you can fight dioxin as your piece in reclaiming and transforming a fundamentally flawed system so that it actually is in service of community health and the environment and social equity. And, and in, it, when you talk about it, it um, it's so inspiring. And um, it... it tells um, a, a different story than uh, so many of the stories that are being told about um, not about taking um, heart from the idea that we can't do this by ourselves rather than um, somehow thinking feeling guilt and shame that I have to control my shopping habits as an individual. The, the, I mean, the, the analogy earlier about um, this being like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting I thought was really interesting because um, we, we think about alcohol as an individual problem. Um, but there's a lot of good evidence to think that depression is actually political. And, and I, I just wonder how you think about the individual responsibility and community responsibility and what we can take on ourselves and what we have to understand as part of the bigger picture. Well, that's a great question that I've been thinking a lot about lately. I do think it's tremendously important to make responsible choices in life and that we should absolutely buy the least toxic and least exploitative product available. But we should do that as a matter of course. That should be a matter of being a, a functioning adult. It's not a political act to do that. I, I don't want to vote with my dollar. I want to vote with my vote. I want to engage in the democratic process um, and come together with people who share these values and visions and make real change. I think that while it's important to, to do um, individual acts, there's only so much we can do on the individual level. The system is, it's a structural problem. And so, for example, people ask me, what should I shop? What should I buy? And I say, you, it doesn't really matter what you buy because the solutions that we need are not for sale in any store. The, the best thing that we can do in a shopping mall situation is turn to the person next to us and say, did you read about this new study? Did you know about this? Would you like to join a meeting? Start rebuilding an engaged political community. That's the best thing that we can do. So let's just tell a little bit more about the story of how you came to make this film and then open it up to the group. So, so I, I'll start this. So I, I remember 
Annie beginning to try to make this speech, right? The first, first came the speech, and, and before that came the vision of, of making the speech. And so how did it go from, I'm, I want to be able to get up for 20 minutes and tell the story to where we are today with 1.5 million and counting? That was last week. It's probably 1.6 million views we've had just in three months since we launched it. And we're averaging about 15,000 new ones a day. So it's, it's very exciting. <laughs> I had a very interesting experience um, that I've described to Charlotte before, learning about how we communicate about this stuff. I literally did spend almost 20 years traveling the world, looking at the factories where our stuff is made and the dumps where it's dumped. And I began seeing all these connections. But um, I realized I was a little too deep into it in order to be able to talk to normal people who weren't, who weren't like <laughs> going to dumps around the world. And I learned this in this um, leadership training program that I was in. It was a fascinating experience. It was a group of 20 very experienced and very diverse activists. And we were supposed to talk about what our purpose was and practice communicating about our purpose and then getting authentic feedback from the group. And one of the things I learned that authentic feedback is an incredibly important thing. To, so we need to solicit that more often because the only thing anybody ever told me was that I talked too fast. Otherwise, I thought everything was fine. So I stood up in, in front of this group of people and I said that my purpose is to bring about a paradigm shift in our relationship to materials. I said we use too much materials, fact, fact, fact. We use too toxic materials, fact, fact, fact. And I will never forget when Eli, who's the director of Move On, and he's a smart guy, he raised his hand and he said, I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> and the whole room did this thing of, if you agree. And I said, you're kidding. You know, too much materials, too toxic materials. What's not to get? He said, what's a material? And I was like, oh. <laughs> and he said, I work on democracy. That has nothing to do with materials. I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding? And when I, <laughs> and he, I said, material has everything to do with you. It's what you're holding. It's what you're sitting on. And he looked down and he said, no, actually, I'm sitting on a chair. <laughs> and I said, is that what you see? And they said, yeah, what do you see? And I said, well, I see it looks like teak. It probably came from Malaysia. I wonder what tribe was kicked out of that forest. Was it the Penan people? It looks like there's probably brominated flame retardants in that upholstery. It looks like PVC coating. And, and they said, Annie, you need to get out a little more. Um, <laughs> so I did. And I um, practiced giving this talk as regular people talk. And one of the things Van Jones said is he said, I never want to hear you say paradigm shift in materials relationship in public ever again. <laughs> And so what I learned is that that sort of over-analysis and over-precision of language doesn't connect with people in their hearts. Whereas we all, I mean, we all know, especially women, we know the heel problem, right? Like, we all know the shoe heel problem. We all know the computer that you've just bought that's already an impediment to communication. By connecting with stories and, and more accessible language is how we can find the commonality of our experience and then leverage that into force for change. So, so as a... As a um child of the 60s, but as um, someone who, who was connected to people from the 50s and 40s and 30s, I, I learned that the more you talked about the big picture, the less, the less translatable it was to regular people. So that I spent a decade trying to read Marx and falling asleep. I mean, it, it became the way to fall asleep for me. Um, but I felt really bad about it. Um, that, you know, if I was only smarter, 
um, uh, a more committed, um, I could like understand this guy. And, um, and I, I, I gave up. And to, for me, um, this uh, film, um, if Marx had done this, think of where we could have been. <laughs> Um, and might have exposed the flaw, but we would have ta talked about it in language that we could have talked about the flaw as well, and and we would have kept going, you know, instead of um, it instead of uh, where it went. But but for me, it was um, uh, the '30s and the '40s were a tremendous time of social change, and that we're entering a time like that again now. And so I just, with that, I want to open it up to the group about what does this cook up for you? What does it make you think about? What questions do you have for Annie? But because we're recording, um, you'll tell me when I need to repeat the question? Okay. Questions? Comments? Um, there are no solutions in there. So we've been, what, six months now, Joe? Something like that. And the first thing we realized was, um, what's the biggest engine for putting things back? What's the big environmental change agent out there? Turns out it's business. It's business that's screwed the planet up. And nonprofits don't work because they end up being beggars, needing external inputs all the time to make them go. And big business doesn't work because it decouples from the profit motive becomes the end-all and the be-all so they can externalize everything else. They get end up trading profits. It's totally abstract, completely disconnected from the stuff. So our, our thought is relocalization because it maybe makes that green circle work. What, what's your thought on that? Mm, solutions. So you should talk about the website and the... I did go through a few solutions at the end, and there is a lot more available on the website. The website is interactive, so that you can click on different parts, and it um, has a lot more information, and most importantly, it has lists of lots of organizations that you can plug into on, to, that are working on all these different issues. Um, the reason I didn't go very specific on what people should do, there's, there's a couple reasons. Um, one is that one of the benefits of such an all-pervasive problem is that there are so many points of intervention. I think that the opportunities are deliciously infinite. And it, in, in a way, it doesn't matter what people do, as long as they're doing it towards structural change. So I'm not gonna dictate to somebody you should fight an incinerator or you should start a local food co-op. People need to do an inventory of their own passions and their own skill set and figure out where to plug in. So if, if you're really into food and there isn't good organic food, start a farmer's market or, or a CSA program. If you're really into transportation and it's too scary to ride your bike where you live, get together with your neighbors and lobby for bike paths. If you're, if you're having a miserable job that you want to quit but you're stuck in it to get health care benefits, fight for health care reform. There, there is an infinite number of things that people can do. So that's one reason I didn't go into specifically into solutions. Another reason was we only had 20 minutes and I wanted to start the conversation. We are looking at making a, a part two. But the other thing is I'm very hesitant and skeptical of these lists of 10 simple things you can do and this is how you should get started. The scale of the problem is so much larger than the sum of those little 10 simple lists that are circulating. Um, one of my friends is writing a book that's coming out next year that I'm so excited about called Beyond Easy. 
The kind of solutions that are commensurate with the scale of the problem are complicated. And it's going to be hard, and it's going to be complicated, and I just couldn't fit them into a, in that format. So what I'm hoping is this will start people thinking, and then realize we're not going to resolve the environmental and social problems with 10 simple things to do. It's going to be hard. We need to buckle down and be ready to do that hard work. But there have been lots of other times in our country's history that society, people have come together and really done the hard work to make change. And, and the, the time it both necessitates it and people are ready for it. One of the things that I feel very excited about is the tremendous response to this film. Um, I feel like in a way we took the temperature of the public. We are getting thousands of emails of people saying, I'm ready, let's go. And I feel like a lot of the in sort of public message from politicians and environmental leaders in a way is like baby talking. I just got this email from a major environmental group saying to launch our climate campaign, everybody turn off your lights for one hour on March 29th. That's great, do that. But <laughs> that's not going to cut it. I mean, we, we really need to get more serious about our solutions. And, and why do you think why do you think we baby talk? I think there's an, a number of reasons. One is it's safe and it's easy. You can talk about changing your light bulbs or um, a lot of these individual actions without getting touching on the real core fundamental flaws with the system and the core um, transformations that have to make, uh, we have to do. So it's, it's safe and it's easy. Another thing is I think that the way that our um, society is organized now culturally through the educational system with our politicians, we have an overly developed identity and skill set around consuming. Um, that we're familiar, we all know how to consume. We have an underdeveloped sense of being an engaged citizen in a living democracy. Um, I, I thought about this recently because one of my, I have an eight-year-old daughter, one of her friends, mothers, called me up and said, do you know the best place in Berkeley to buy Webkins? And you know what I thought, frighteningly, I do. I do know where to buy Webkins, but I don't know what to do about the fact that we need a stoplight on the Gilman Street exit to the highway. I don't know what to do about that problem. And that alarmed me, and it just got me thinking about how much more training and orientation we get about functioning as a consumer as opposed to a citizen. And I think that's really dangerous on a number of levels. Then when we're faced with environmental or public health threats, because we're so familiar in functioning with our consumer hat on, it's so fast for us to go there. What can I buy differently to solve this problem? As a, so we, we go to this individual lifestyle choice place because that's where we're comfortable. We know how to do that. We know how to shop. But we don't go to this, what can we do collectively to change the problem place? Because our citizen self is undeveloped. And I actually think it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Um, you know, as I said in the film, we're working more hours than ever before and, and watching more TV than ever before. And so what, is, what are we not doing that we used to do with our time? We're not engaging in civil society. We're not building community. And it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle. Because we're spending less time engaging in community and building civil society, the community is no longer providing us things that it used to. So now we have to turn to the marketplace for those. Things like entertainment. Childcare, help moving, someone to talk to when you're feeling blue. All of these things that the community used to provide, a ride to the airport. I mean, when was the last time you asked a friend to drive you to the airport? All of these things the community used to provide because we're not investing in it anymore. We have to go buy this stuff, so we have to work even further. So it's a really dangerous cycle where I worry that our collective action, our, our community building, our civic engagement muscle is atrophying. 
And to me, that is the biggest risk of this solve your problem through green shopping message is it's, it's further atrophying that civic engagement muscle. Whereas we need to build that up, get back involved, rebuild community, and demand a, a government and an economic system that really is going to serve long-term public and environmental health. Yes. As, as I heard often when people were first mourning my friend Judy Berry, don't mourn, organize, you know. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking about the, the question of business being part of the solution. Um, I just had the opportunity to proofread a book that's going to come out later this year um, called The Tactics of Hope. And it's about social entrepreneurship. And social entrepreneurship is at least a new way rather than the old line. Um, we will fundraise, we will beg individual contributions and contributions from foundations and be a nonprofit, and that's our vehicle for social change now kind of way. You know, it's like some people have some really amazing solutions that are driven by things that are sustainable economically, which unfortunately is a really huge priority right now. And there's some great examples in, in that, and I think that they have a website at tacticsofhope.org. Um, but, and, and that's great. You know, they have things like water pumps for African villages where they didn't have access to good water, and women are walking miles and hours to get water every day. And now they have a merry-go-round that the children play on that draws mm -hmm. the water up mm -hmm. in 11,000 villages. Those are, those are great things. But, you know, I only think that's going to be part of the solution. So that's just my thought there. My question for you is, on the statistic about 1% of um, goods purchased being still in use after six months, can you give me any sense of, of the other 99, how much of that is stuff like groceries, food, toilet paper, shampoo, stuff that is just used, actually, actually consumed? That, that statistic, it's on page 81 of Natural <laughs> Capitalism. Paul Hawken figured that statistic out. I know that because everyone asks. I, I, in hindsight, I wonder if we made it a little misleading where we put that, because most people think it's 99% it's of what we buy. It's 99% of total material flow that is trashed. So that includes you know, the, the two tons of waste you make to get your gold wedding ring or your, uh -huh. your laptop computer. It includes all the upstream waste. So that's total material flow. That's everything we use. I, I mean, everything that's, that's, that's used in order to get us the stuff that we buy. Uh -huh. I haven't seen a statistic that I trust on what percentage of stuff we buy is trashed within um, six months. Neil Seldman from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance says that 80% of products in the United States are designed for single use. I mean, I don't know. I haven't been convinced enough to include that statistic in there. But I am confident of the fact um, for every one garbage can of waste or, or recyclables that we put out on the curb, 70 garbage cans were made upstream. Mm -hmm. So if you think that's of the stuff we put out on the curb, 70 times more was made upstream. It's all the industrial processing waste. And of the stuff that you put out on the curb, a lot of that was bought in less than six months. So if we were looking at what percentage of stuff that we buy is still in use. I don't think it's enormously different, but that, that fact is actually 1% of total material flow is still in product or use. So should we talk some about businesses' role? Um, the, the campaign that Annie and I worked on together, Healthcare Without Harm, was, was all about um, separating downstream users from upstream producers of this problem and getting the healthcare industry to become our ally in, in creating solutions rather than keeping recreating the problem. But, but how do you feel about 
um, the, the role of businesses in creating solutions? I feel ambivalent about that um, because um, there are definitely businesses that are using their um, activity to support positive transformation. I went last year to the Bali conference. That's the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. And I was so inspired by what I heard. Unfortunately, that they're a very small segment within the broader um, business community. What, what discourages me about the business environmental fashion these days is that so much of it is just greenwashing or, or is, um, is not really transformative. It's, we're going to do this business anyway. Is there a way that we can lessen our impact? Which, again, that's good. We should all lessen our impact. But the stuff that really gives me hope is the people that are doing business and lessening their impact in order to create structural change. There are some fundamental flaws in the way that our economy is organized. You know, the obsession on unlimited growth. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, if, if a business is still operating in that paradigm that unlimited growth is A, possible, and B, good, and let's, let's limit our impact along the way, it's not going to cut it. You know, maybe that's a step in business's evolution, but we really need to get to a new paradigm, which is how can we have a steady state economy that can, can be environmentally sustainable and, and respectful of people over the long haul. We'll be right back in a moment. Um, where do you see the, well, besides the pressure of the people, but in terms of where this pressure should be applied most for this change to happen? Is that a political level? Is that at the level of the company? I know it's all needed, but in your opinion, where is the most leverage? It's a good question. There really are so many leverage points, and I'm a big believer in having fun, so I think you should pick whatever leverage point turns you on. Like, for me, I just love fighting incinerators, so I'm going to keep, I just love it, I'm going to keep fighting incinerators as my leverage point. Um, I think that it, that involve engaging in democracy and taking back our government in this country is incredibly important. We need to drastically change the way that our government is measuring progress and interacting with communities around the world. I think that uh, at the international level, it's really important to get involved with things like the World Trade Organization and these international financial institutions that are determining the, quote, development model around the world. Um, I've spent a lot of time in less industrialized countries, and I will tell you that we export our hazardous products that we don't want here, pesticides that are banned for use here, but we export them. We export our dirty technologies, like incinerators. Hasn't been a new incinerator built here in 10 years. Our companies are flooding Asia and Africa and Latin America with these things. We export our waste. Almost all of our e-waste is going to Africa and Asia. But the most hazardous thing that we export is this way of organizing an economy. And through international financial institutions and overseas development aids, we are spreading this all over the world. And as I said, if everybody consumed at U.S. rates, we'd need three to five planets, and we only have one. So we're either at a point where we're going to have a kind of resource apartheid where we say we get to consume like this and you don't, or we're going to drastically rethink what does the good life mean and, and stop exporting this model globally. So I think internationally, the World Trade Organization, the World Banks are a great way to engage. I think locally, your own community is a great place to engage. In the schools, in the transportation, there's so many opportunities to get involved. And, and how do you think about guilt? 
you know, the, the, the um, uh, I, cosmically, um, the, because, you know, s sometimes, um, well, we've had new school events in the room where I've been in the back of the room where Michael is now and he's been in my chair, and, and someone is talking and explaining a problem, and, and the feeling I get from the back of the room is like people are going like this. You know, and like they're like shrinking, and um, because the the weight of the problem it is paralyzing. And there's a piece of me that thinks that when we paralyze people, they sh they shop even more. You know, as, as just just to feel better, just to feel better. Because so, it's familiar. Because it, well, yeah, you know, and we um uh and it, and it somehow it you know it's like eating the whole bag of cookies. You know it's bad for you, but in the moment, I'm told, <laughs> it can feel really good. Um, uh, uh, how, how do you think about, the, you know, and how do we all think about giving people enough information that they're moved, moved, they're moved by their better angels rather than giving people so much information that they feel like, you know, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. I might as well have another pair of shoes. <laughs> I think, do you have a comment on this? Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I've, I'm a psychotherapist who's been working in education around these issues for um, 30 years, not as successfully as I wish that I had, but I've learned something about that issue. That it's not so much being overwhelmed by the complexity as it is not knowing the point of individual entry. So that, and that what we don't do in our schools is teach children how to find the point of their individual entry in anything, whether it's a subject matter, whether it's a, a social crisis, an interpersonal issue. And, and what I'm wondering is if this isn't a really good vehicle to begin that. I, Annie, you've been talking about all the different levels at which inter any intervention would help. But is there some way to address this for individuals on your website or in your program about how to think about it individually? How does this relate to me? And what, and what could I do today? I'm not sure. Um, on our website, we do have, it's divided into different topic areas. The whole, the whole narrative is divided. And then it links directly to organizations that are working on different issues. So there's that way. I, I was under a lot of pressure, actually, when I made the website from media who insisted they wanted to attend Annie's 10 steps on how to get involved. And it was interesting because I resist that approach. For one thing, I don't want to tell you what to do. I mean, we, we are all grown-ups, and we should all come together and think together. I mean, actually, kids, too. We should all come together and figure out what the problems are. So I don't want to patronize you and belittle me to say this is what you should do. Um, but I got a lot of response that people actually want guidance. And so I made a sort of tongue-in-cheek list of 10 things to get started there um, that included a small thing you could do to get started, but included a bigger thing to make those small things add up to more systemic change and to get us to think more structurally. So I said, for example, change your light bulb and then change your paradigm. And I explained what that means. I said, I said uh, park your bike and walk, and when necessary, march. Sometimes we need to take it to the streets. I said, recycle your waste, and when necessary, recycle your elected officials. Yes. And it was a sort of a compromise, because I'm, I'll give you some suggestions on how to get started, but those little things are not going to add up to make the, the, a foundation of a social movement we need at the scale that we need to take back this system.
There are a lot of hands, so I want to, someone who I can't see. So there, yes. You, I'm, I'm talking to you. Oh, exactly. All right, thank you. <laughs> um, I'm sitting here wearing the multiple hats that each of us wear in our identities and trying to think about where I'm putting the conversation and how I'm seeing this particular presentation again, because I've seen it several times. Um, I have two-part question to you. One is, as a parent of an eight-year-old, when your child is 18, have you conceptualized a vision 10 years into the future of how you could begin to articulate now what a healthy community and a healthy civil society looks and feels like mm -hmm. from a personal perspective? And then from a systemic societal part of the question, my other part of my head, is I do think the question that was raised a moment ago is absolutely incredibly key. We are all so saturated by what's being marketed to us in our identity, even as parents, <coughs> even, those, even those, those of us that have been nurtured by families that engaged us at a very young age to come into this type of dialogue as my parents did. But I work in this realm full time, and I know not only am I trying to help other families, I have to think about my own family of our own entry points. So from a systemic perspective, with that 10-year question also in mind, what systemically do you think are our biggest leverage points to radically change where we sit now to where we can sit in 10 years with our children? That's a big one. Um, I think, I'm not sure about this, but I think that one of the most strategically effective leverage points right now is around this obsession with growth we have in this um, society and how uh, progress is measured by growth. And I think there's a huge myth around growth. One is that it's universally good, whereas if you look at um, who's contributing to growth, it's you know somebody with cancer who just got divorced and just got in a car crash. That's all plus for growth. Now, if we're looking, if we had a different set of determinants, a different set of metrics by which to me measure progress, that would not actually be a net plus. So I think um, exposing this um, myth about growth, that it's universally good and that it's universally positive, and coming together to figure out a different set of metrics by which we measure progress, I think that would be a phenomenally strategically important thing to do. Can you imagine right now if any one of the presidential candidates <clears throat> said, maybe unlimited growth is not the best thing for this country? I feel like there is no politically and culturally relevant discourse happening right now about this. And so my, my current thinking is that on the systemic level, um, sort of taking the veil off this myth of growth is, is incredibly important. Annie, do you know about the conversation going on about the way shareholders have been um, limiting their sense of, of what a good, um, what good corporate behavior is to... I'm not sure. So, I mean, the, the biggest... Someone should talk about it, but the biggest stories have been about... Um, uh, what's going on in the newspaper industry, mm -hmm. where it's not that, that newspapers weren't profitable, it's just that they weren't more profitable every quarter. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, their shareholders have, in, have insisted, I mean, the Chronicle is one of them, right, on huge cuts 
because the, there wasn't the kind no, of it's return. It's not the shareholders. <laughs> oh, right, good. So, so it's not the shareholders. It's the boards of directors mm -hmm. and the corporate um, companies that speak for shareholders, but don't speak for shareholders. So it's just an analogy. It's another aspect of the people having lost their voice. And a part of the problem, I think, too, is the, um, how we're all, and we all have these either 401ks or 403bs or whatever. So we're, we have these big institutional shareholders that have billions of dollars to spend on behalf of, this, of their um, constituents, which are us. And they've got to show a profit. I mean, they, they, got to, they, they insist on showing a profit because every year people don't see like a 10% growth in their 401k or whatever. I mean, that's people's money that they're retiring with and they don't have the money. So it's kind of like a catch-22 because we're tied into that. Because that's and I, and I feel lots of guilt about that because a long time ago I read a quote from Edward Abbey saying that growth for the sake of growth is cancer, which is ironic <laughs> here. But you know, he, know, he identified that back in the 80s and, or before. And it's one of those things I've thought about for a long time because I feel guilty with my 401k. But at the same time, you depend on that. So it's... So then, and then the other part of the question, thank you, that you were going to answer. So that's... That's let me answer this. Let me respond okay. to this first because I think this is so interesting. One of the things that I'm doing with myself is trying to further develop my systems thinking lens and so, or my systems thinking muscle because the more that we see all these interconnections, the more we see our way out. So when I'm looking at something in my personal life or systemically that I could shift towards more sustainability and I butt up against something like that, in, instead of just get discouraged, I like to say, well, what about the system would have to change for this not to be an obstacle? So on that front, I, I worry about, well, my retirement. You know, so should I invest money? Where should I invest it? What about growth? But then I think, well, why am I worried about my retirement? Partly because of the lack of a social fabric that we have in our society. And so the deeper we look at why these things are a concern, the, the more opportunities I think that it, it creates for us to find systemic solutions to them. So one of the best solutions I think to that is, to, I mean, to the need for financial security in our retirement age, which we need, is to look at building up a community and stronger social fabric so that we're not so all alone in our, in our retirement. And your vision for 10 years from now, what does it look like that's different? Um, for, for me, a real priority is around community. I think that one of the primary strategies on the personal level to address all of this stuff is to build community. I think that the, I know it sounds like so corny, Berkeley-ish to say, but I really believe that it's true. That um, <coughs> one of, this, does, this, we need to decouple more and better, right? We need to think about what makes life better. At a different time in our society's development and in many places in the world, more still does need, mean better. I mean, we have to remember half of the world's population still lives on less than $2 a day. For a lot of people, they need more. But we're living in a situation now where most of us have a surplus of stuff and a deficit of community. There, I think there's a number of different aspects of that uh, problem. One is that it's lonely. We're, we feel isolated and we're lonely. I just recently read a quarter of people in the United States don't know their next-door neighbor's name. So we're, we're lonely, so we go shopping, or we go surf the web, and then it's a further reinforcing cycle. 
Um, that's one of the, the breakdowns of it. The other thing is that since we have a weaker communities, we're buying food from further away. We're having to drive further to get to work and to get to the store. I think that if we rebuild our communities in more decentralized, I'm really into the relocalization movement, it will be better for the environment. There will be less transportation. There will be more locally supported agriculture. There will be a stronger social fabric. We'll know our neighbors and each other's kids. Um, and, it, and it will actually be a significant force in moving us towards sustainability. And anyway, we have no choice because we're running out of oil. <laughs> so we've, we've got to build community anyway. So are we going to wait and be at the effect of this and scramble to figure out how to do it, or are we going to be proactive and be, do it more intentionally and mindfully and figure out how to build um, local communities? I had a, a simple suggestion for you as an example of a really simple thing to do is shut off your television because it'll spawn can you speak loud, please? <clears throat> Turn off your TV as a simple solution. It gets you out of the marketing cycle. It gives you time where you don't know what to do. So you meet your neighbors. Other kids come over and you talk. You play games. You read books. You do all the things that you miss because... Television is such a pervasive thing in our society, and that is all it is doing. It's telling you to go, all your stuff sucks, go out and get new stuff. If you're not getting that message, and your kids aren't thinking, I gotta have that to wear to school, or I'm not cool, if that's not even in their head, they're already like three kicks along the road. So, it just is a simple thing to do. It'll spawn a lot of other things. Yeah, and I'm curious about your sort of talk about next phase of doing something on stuff too and solutions. And I understand trepidation, not wanting to, and asking you, not telling us, you know, what which to do. And um, I saw that on your blog about high school kids doing a YouTube, sort of asking you to do a, you know, part eight or whatever it was in the next version. Um, and I would say, you know, the power. I mean, we're involved in the project. We're asking kids to map the good stuff in their community and posting it. You know, good causes, nonprofits, and it's like, can we talk about the good stuff in terms of not you projecting out, but in terms of the invitation of along that line or you know, around the world, having people talk about, well, here's the good stuff that's addressing each of those through stories, um, and having it self-generated through the, you know, the, the 2.0 effect, wisdom of crowds, all the social networking web stuff. In terms of if you have a, a million and a half, two million viewers then that's a huge opportunity to get people to post and share, and, and then people can find their passions within these stories that are maybe organized in a systematic way. Um, I mean, that would just seem sort of an, an obvious great potential, but I'd like to hear you talk more about how you see moving this as a movement. You have to understand that the first time I was even on a blog was like three months ago. I'm very new to this um, technology world, and I'm a complete convert. I mean, it is absolutely amazing me that I'm getting emails every day from places as diverse as Pakistan and Iran and South Africa and Argentina and that people are making response videos to this on YouTube. I saw one recently of a guy sitting in a playground in Russia 
just filming himself talking in this blizzard. <laughs> and, <he's, laughs> and he Trisha. says, he says, I need to talk to you. I just saw that he's on the swing, so he's going back and forth. I need to talk to you. I just saw this film, The Story of Stuff. And I was like, wow. So I am super into that, but my learning curve is very high. So if you'd love to coach me afterwards, I'd be delighted. One of the things that we've realized right away about making another one about the solutions is it can't be me explaining what the solutions are. It will be something where we go and visit or look at a huge variety of things. We're thinking of like a Harold and the Purple Crayon style where I can draw a door and we can go through it and say, look, here's my friends in their green economic development zone. So, the style of the story of stuff is so magical. Yeah. It connects so quickly and so deeply. It, it, you can have eight and ten year olds sitting there for 20 yeah. minutes watching it right. and not going, you know, fidgeting and looking for something else to do. That's, we, that's one of your magical things. We definitely want to use it, though, as a infrastructure architecture for community building and movement building. So we're looking at all these possibilities of, of like video wikis where people can add their own pieces and um, especially around the solutions. I would like to suggest some criteria by which we look at solutions, but I'm not going to be arrogant and naive enough to dictate what the solution would look like in every place because it has to meet meet the local community needs. All the way in the back? Yeah, um, I think that beyond the content of your film, you've really achieved a transformation in communication that has been so overdue. Um, because there, there are so many people with the deep knowledge of the problem and of the solutions, but it's not communicated in a way that builds citizen expertise or engagement. So. I'm just wondering if, if all of you, I understand you don't want to be prescriptive on the solutions, but if, if the only two things that you did in that second part were, one, how the things we learned in making this film, in terms of taking your deep expertise and be, making it accessible to everyone, um, that would be hugely useful um, to the, the spawning of the communication of the solutions by so many people. But then, it really resonated what you were saying about our undeveloped citizen aspect and the necessity of um, repopulating our local governments and taking ownership of our democracy. That topic is not prescriptive and is much needed. I think the last learning many of us had there was how a bill became a law, which is <laughs> an example I've used to describe your style in part. So um, I guess this is more of a uh, hope than a question. but. Um, those two pieces, I think, would be immensely useful to a lot of people who take off with them. That's very useful feedback. And if others have ideas about how we can build upon this, please send us an email or I put sign-up sheets out in the lobby. We would be really happy to engage with you to figure out different ways to take this to the next level. Behind Julia. I, we can't see each other. There you are. Okay. Yes, you. <laughs> so um, the more you understand a complex system problem like this, the more daunting it feels. It's got so many pieces. It just really makes your head hurt. Uh, and then you say, well, I, I got to choose one that resonates for me and, and go in there, which is, which is absolutely right and which is what everyone individually or in organizations should do. But I think there's another, there's another level at which it could be addressed. I call it the meta level. Um, ideas have power. Big ideas have big power. <coughs> power is the ability to change the course of events. The idea of liberal capitalism was a very big idea. It's about 150, 200 years old. 
and it has transformed the world and continues to transform the world. It's a huge, compelling idea. The problem is it depends on more of everything, right? More stuff to make stuff out of, to sell to ever larger populations, which are known as markets. <laughs> so, and that's what it's based on. So compelling that we're all going for it. Uh, there's some other compelling ideas around. And if, if there were kind of like an umbrella idea that you could um, see played out at all levels, sort of the mid-level of organization and institutions and structures, at the micro level of what I do tomorrow morning, you know, with this package. Uh, maybe that can help to make the whole big mess of stuff more coherent. An example, King of Bhutan had said, we're not going to measure success of our society as gross national product like the rest of you guys. We're going to measure it by gross national happiness. Well, isn't that cute? You know, I mean, in the King of Bhutan, you get to say that, you know, Buddhist and good stuff. But he's been spending years and years, spending years and years and years with authorities and experts and big brains from all over the world trying to define the metrics of gross national happiness. I mean, really reduce it to ground level, to practices. There's a big idea. Um, there's big ideas in natural capitalism. There's a big idea in cradle to cradle. We've got, we've got some big ideas. And you want to, like, if you want to march, uh, you need a flag. Uh, people never stormed the barricades because they received a memo. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I got it on my iPhone. <laughs> or got an email. You know? Well, yeah, they do with an email. Well, but where's the barricade? What's the flag? What, which direction am I going? And what am I going to try to achieve? So maybe if your story, which is, which is one of the best sort of mid-level breakdowns, sort of unpacking, of the big problem. If it had a kind of a, a high-level motto, or a high-level, no, motto isn't it, idea, really big transformative idea that it served, like gross national happiness. Um, wow. You know, maybe you get more marchers, maybe you just get more force, more power, more impetus, greater scalability, because people could see how that big idea could play out at many different levels, in many different little parts of their life. Mm. You know, something that I, when I saw this on the internet, it was right before Christmas, right? And there's just that big push that mm -hmm. to make happiness around Christmas, mm -hmm. you have to go out and buy mm -hmm. things for other people, you know, be, you know, somehow with a thing, you're gonna make them happy, you know? And I remember having a conversation with Megan about, I, just, I don't want to go out and buy any more stuff. I want to just, there, I've got all this stuff I could just give away that I already have. And the other thing that's been kind of interesting since I saw your film is that when I'm um, with a client or whatever, we're talking about what they need, you know, to improve their environment, um, in my case it's gardening or whatever, I, what I say to people now is I say, you know what, whenever I, I feel this need, like I need something, or like, what are we going to do to fix this, or whatever. I have this uh, new voice, and it's all from this film, which says, 
I think I already have what I need. I think, you know, if I, you know what, if I just stop a minute and like look around, I bet what we need is just right around here somewhere, you know, and it's so true. Every time I do that, I look around and think, you know what, I actually have a shampoo that will do that and it's buried in the, underneath the sink in a thing there, or I already have, you know, we really have a lot of what we think we need, we already have that. And if we don't, maybe it, our neighbor has it, you know, um, and they're not using it. So if there was some way that you could just get people to stop that initial knee-jerk reaction of, okay, well, you know, and then for me to run out and buy somebody 10, you know, 15-gallon cans of some particular plant, that, that's the economic model for me to make a living because I buy plants and I sell them to people and that's what they need. You know what I mean? It's like, so, but for me to say, you know what? Let's look around and see, you know, I bet we could divide that thing over there into 10 different plants and plant it around here. You know what I mean? It's just having that, that shift of like, let, and I, you'd be amazed how many people, and these are people who have lots of money and have lots of stuff, whatever, and they're used to having their needs met Let's fix it up. When we, you know, when can you be in here to change it? They actually really like that. When I say that, they say to me, "You know what? You're so right." You're so, so right. we because have... I think there is a really big. There's a piece of us that all in our core knows how empty it is mm. to look for fulfillment in going out and buying, and how much more fulfilling it is to get it. By looking at, you know, by already having it. You know what I mean? That's the thing that we need to spread. That's the idea. It's like, we've already got it. We've already you know? got it. So so we, we have a, a couple of minutes, and I want to let Annie um, uh, talk about the banner. And, and I wanted to add to that visual that, you know, at the beginning of um, the story of stuff, you talk about linear not being real. And so when you think about what, what the banner looks like, what's it shaped like? It's a circle. It's a circle, like at the end, with a lot of interconnections. So it sounds very Aldo Leopoldi, right? All the, like a web. But um, the stronger that we can build connections locally, the more that we can unplug from this destructive, linear, global economy. So it's a green, vibrant circle with lots and lots of connections. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.